The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity, Nanquan's Cows. The pointer. Becoming a Buddha and being an ancestor is disliked for wearing a defiled name. Wearing horns and fur is pushed to the superior position. This is why the true light doesn't shine and great wisdom appears foolish. There's yet another who is deaf for convenience and pretends not to be skillful. Do we know who they are? One day, Nanquan said to the assembly, the Buddhas of the past, present, and future do not know it is. Cats and cows know it is. Verse, limping and wobbling, tattered and disheveled, a hundred can't take it in, one isn't worth it. Silent, knowing themselves the peace of the state, ebullient, who says in their guts, they're a fool. All throughout the universe, everything becomes food. Nose hanging all the way down, one may freely seek to repletion. Uh, so we're concluding our session, our August session, this morning. And as those of you at home may have figured out, <laughs> we had a bit of COVID visit us this week. And so... Um, a few of the folks who were here um, got sick and left. Others, just to be safe, left this morning. And uh, But we are still here. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking about this as I was waiting for the to come out, and I was thinking of that image of the lotus arising out of the muddy water that has been used in Buddhism for centuries. And if you've ever seen a lotus up close, they are almost indescribable in their beauty. And that sense of arising out of uh, the conditions, <clears throat> which from the outside may seem imperfect, insufficient, and yet whatever they are, that lotus appears. And I think of that in terms of practicing, doing session. Those of you who are doing continuous thread this week. I spoke with some of you and the situations that arise that you meet and that wonderful aspect of practice, which is both responsive and attentive. It's not that we just stay stuck in a practice box and ignore whatever's happening around, but in responding and attending that something continues. So yesterday, in the koan on Mu that I gave a talk on, human beings have Buddha nature, but dogs don't. Today, Buddhas don't have it, but cats and cows do. <laughs> so, so we might wonder, what is the concern? Nanquan was the teacher of Zhaozhou, descendant of Matsu, so he's really at a very sort of 
particular point of, of Chan. And so what is this great master's, what is his concern for animals, beasts, cattle, cats and cows? Is it because they need our help? Is it because they have something to show us, to tell us? Are they enlightened because they don't have human consciousness? Are we deluded because we do? And in the pointer, he tells us something. Becoming a Buddha and an ancestor is disliked for wearing a defiled name, wearing horns and furs pushed to the superior position. And so aren't we here to become Buddhas and ancestors? Aren't we here to let the true light shine and great wisdom come forth? Why does he say great wisdom appears foolish? What is he pointing to here? That Buddhas of the past, present, and future don't know it is and cats and cows do. And what's always important with these kinds of teachings is that we not get, you know, just dismiss it because we don't understand it or we get captivated by the, you know, the language, the poetry, and kind of get um, lost in that. The Buddhist teachings are always pointing to today, to our lives, to what's going on, how to live this human life, how to live together with each other, how to free ourselves from all of the multitudinous forms of suffering that we create, how to bring benefit to this world. It's always that. And so that means we have to sometimes look more closely, examine more deeply, spend some time with what does not seem immediately clear. And just with that in mind, there were times in my own training where I, you know, working through the koan system, which is rather extensive, there were koans that just didn't seem, I didn't, they didn't seem that important. I didn't, they didn't, you know, I didn't resonate with them. It was like I wasn't interested, but there they were. And it was part of my training to, that I was choosing to take that up. And so I would think about the fact that here it was within this August collection of teachings that the teacher who put these together, the teacher who was part of that koan, all of those students before me who had taken it up, trusted that the reason it had come down to me today was because it had made a difference in people's lives. And so as a way to try and bring my mind around, rather than just sit there and face something and say, I don't like the taste of this, to try and drop that away and, and see what is the taste of this. To say, I have Buddha nature, I have enlightened nature. To say, I am deluded, I am separate and isolated. One is like taking empty space and putting it on a throne. And the other is like taking the boundless sky and burying it underground. So many ideas, so much effort. In the poem, limping and wobbling, tattered and disheveled, the commentary says, this describes clumsiness. An old master, Yaoshan, was once reading a scripture and his student said, you should stop making monkeys of people, teacher. 
Stop reading them the Dharma. And Yaoshan rolled up the scripture, put it away, and said, what time of day is it? And the student said, it's high noon. And Yaoshan said, there's still this pattern. And the student says, I don't even have nothing. And Yaoshan said, you are too brilliant. And the student says, I'm just like this. What is your understanding, teacher? Yaoshan said, I am limping and wobbling, ungainly in a hundred ways, clumsy in a thousand, and yet still go on this way. <laughs> when you look at the 10th Oxfordian picture downstairs, the sort of culmination of this long journey, it's just an ordinary person, dusty, no shine, not brilliant. But what is that not brilliant? Bodhidharma said, it's about Buddha. And Buddha, he said, means to be aware, miraculously aware. Responding, perceiving, arching your eyebrows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. This is all your miraculously aware nature. This nature is the mind. And the mind is Buddha, and Buddha is the path, and the path is Zen. But the word Zen remains a puzzle to many ordinary beings. As I said yesterday in the talk on Mu, how do we seek what is naturally ours? How do we discover what is already present? How do we go seeking without taking one step? Because in that we move away. How do we not take a step while practicing step by step. <laughs> and so Nanquan's, or the pointer says, well, for the moment, let horns and fur take the superior position. I was remembering many years ago when I had left high school and was trying to find my way. And <clears throat> I um, wanted to work on a dairy farm. And so I made a way to uh, upstate New York and uh, outside of Hamilton, New York, in the Shenango Valley. I remember I arrived with my bicycle in a, a box of clothes, I think. And it was the middle of, uh, it was the beginning, the peak of, of autumn. And growing up down south, we have autumn, but we don't have autumn like this. And I'd read about it, I've seen photographs, but I was in the midst of it, and I could barely breathe. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But I worked on this dairy farm for a while, and one of my jobs was to muck out the, the area where the calves were, which was one of my favorite jobs, because I'd go in there, and they were all calves, so they were all frisky, right? Little pups. And so I had to clean out all the straw and put in new straw, and they just loved that. So they'd be kicking it up. And, and there was one in particular that, that, that I really took a, a shine to, because it was, it was a Holstein cow, so they were black and white. But this one was like burgundy, and a little bit, a little bit smaller than the rest. I really had some affection. And so one day, Freeman, the farmer that I worked for, was watching me, sort of from a distance, and he... As I got out, he said, you know, when you leave here, I'll give that calf to you. 
I see how much you like her. And I thought, Freeman, I came on my bicycle. <laughs> Not sure how I can work that one out. Wearing horns and fur takes the superior position. When the teachings talk about being unconcerned, when we practice letting go of the self and of self-consciousness, what is that? When Yao Shan says, I'm ungainly in a hundred ways, clumsy in a thousand, and yet I go on this way. How to be simple, that is not simplistic. How to be authentic, that is by its very nature uncontrived. How to be alive and unadorned. And so raise the wearing of horns and furs to the superior position for a moment. You know, we're storytellers, right? We tell stories, that's what we do. I remember my mom, when I was young, <clears throat> there was, on the Peachtree Street, down from our neighborhood, there was a, a porn shop that grew up, adult videos. And we were having dinner one night, and she said, I drove by and I saw that, and I was just so upset. And that was it. And then I heard her tell that story over the coming weeks to different people, and it grew a little bit. Her upset grew to stopping going in, saying her mind to the owner. It just kept getting more and more elaborate, right? It wasn't true, <laughs> but it was a better story. <laughs> we tell stories. It's what we do in our mind, and our stories become our realities. And we love stories, right? And so when things arise in our mind, they come with a story, and then we build on it. When we see somebody in front of us, something in front of us, if it doesn't come with a story, we create one. If it does come with a story, we create more. And this is the world. And so how to be simple and unadorned, it doesn't mean to be drab, right? It doesn't mean to be dull. It's very op opposite of that. It's alive, it's vibrant, it's abundant in its simplicity, to recognize that our activities are miraculous in their simplicity. So we have to free ourselves of the stories so that we can realize that that's what we've been calling the world and free ourselves of that. So that then as we continue to tell stories, because we don't stop, we, when we wake up from the dream, the deluded dream that we've been dreaming all of our lives, now we can dream awake. We can tell a story of bodhisattvas and buddhas and know that they're stories. And that because they're stories doesn't mean that they are not worthy of telling, that they, are not, that they don't have power that we give to them. As I was working on this, a memory came to mind of when I was working, and also I had a conversation with somebody in Doksan, of when I was in my early 20s, I was in New York, trying to find my way, 
post-dairy farm and working in a restaurant. <clears throat> and, and I saw how, well, I, I just would. It took a while to see it, but I would come up to a table, I'd see the people, and I'd immediately get a sense of how it was going to go, right? These people are going to be nice. These people are going to be a pain in my ass. These people are going to tip me well. These people are not. And how often I was wrong. And sometimes in stunning ways. The people that I thought were, you know, that I didn't want to wait on. It was going to be a waste of time or they were going to be, would do something that just took my breath away. Something so simple. Something generous, something unexpected. And that kept happening. And I started to see both what I was doing and how wrong I was. And why do I keep trying to make myself right in that way? Can I just go to the table and let them show me? The path is to wake up, to enter into the realms of Buddhas, and bodhisattvas, to free ourselves of suffering. The lotus rises above all of these images. So then why is Yaoshan sort of unabashedly talking about how ungainly and clumsy he is? Why do we raise horns and furs to the superior position? In the fourth rank of Master Dongshan, which is talking about the integration how do we integrate all of the dualities? How do we live and realize and embody so that we're going beyond all of the stuff that we make conflicts out of and realize that's the story we've been telling for so long? It is so worn out, and yet we don't seem to be tired of it yet. It so shows itself for what it is and what it will be every time. And yet we keep telling it. And so in the path of enlightening that mind that creates those samsaric stories, as that integration begins taking place, harmonizing, as Dogen said, inner and outer, living, practicing what the teachings are teaching that we have faith in, and then living that, that along the way, there are, that's what the ten Oxarian pictures are depicting. That's what Dongshan's five shrakes are speaking about. And in the fourth rank, which is the merging of dualities, <clears throat> Hagwin said, the Bodhisattva stands in the midst of the filth of the world, head covered with dust, face streaked with dirt. They move through the confusion of sound and sensual pleasure, buffeted this way and buffeted that, but they're like a fire-blooming lotus that on encountering the flames becomes brighter. That this bodhisattva in encountering the flames burns brighter. That the lotus, as the water is muckier, becomes more beautiful, more luminous. They enter the marketplace with empty hands, yet others somehow seem to receive benefit from them. This is what is called to be on the road, but not have le having left the house to have left the house yet not to be on the road. Is this an ordinary person? Are they a sage? And yet they are not yet in the realms of cats and cows. Not yet. And so the fifth rank, 
Because what Hakuin is speaking about here is the splendor, the brilliance. Even though their face is covered with dust, even though they arrive empty-handed, there's still some shine. Cows may seem humble and unassuming. Cats can appear regal and above it all, right? I think that's either what you love about them or what you don't love about them. (laughs) Is that who they are? Is that their beinghood, their cowhood, their cathood? Is that our projection? Is that our mind that we're seeing? Buddhas don't know it is, Nanquan says. And the footnote says, just because they know it is. Cats and cows know it is. And the footnote says, just because they don't know it is. And so what is this knowing? It's one of the important aspects of the teachings, particularly in the Zen tradition. The same word within one sentence has been used certain ways, different ways, without explaining itself which means we have to enter into it, if we will, enter into it more expansively and not try and ferret out what does it mean, but what is it pointing to in me? What is it to not know it is and be in the company of Buddhas? Because they know it is. What knowing is that? To know normally means to understand, to have knowledge, to have cognition of something, to be able to explain it, identify it. And there's a lot of power in that. It is powerful. It's also a way of creating a sense of control when I know something, when I think I know you. There's a sense of now having some control, right? Particularly if I'm invested out of fear or hatred or confusion to to distance and control what I don't understand, what I might be afraid of. I remember listening to a talk by Look, I'm a trans, anti-racism, anti-patriarchy, anti-oppression, brilliant person and speaker. And they said that a lot of times people will come up to him and say, I just don't get you. I don't get being trans. I don't get, and he says, you don't have to get it. You don't have to understand. Just treat me like a person. That's all I'm asking. Your understanding me is not required to be kind. Knowing, knowing and not knowing knowing that it's wisdom, knowing that it's knowledge, knowing that separates, knowing that unifies. They're all just points or pointing to the various aspects of you and me, our mind, and the ways we use it. The ways we use it within clarity and examination and the ways we use it unknowingly. The way we use it with understanding and self-awareness and the ways it ceases to be used. Because something drops away. When we practice letting go of thoughts and emotions and so on, the story, the stuff of me, 
the particulars of I, how I see myself, how I want you to see me, how the world has seen me and taught me what I am, all of that complex. When I let go of each of those aspects, which, as I said yesterday, just means to not pursue it. I'm letting go of that's that piece of that sense of self. When there is just self-awareness, my mind is quiet, but I'm aware that I am sitting. I'm aware that I am breathing. Self-consciousness. When I let go of that, I'm letting go of that more subtle aspect of self, of consciousness, of knowing. Because think about it, it's that capacity of our mind to look and see someone living our life, having our meals, right? Pooping our poop, right? Doing our work. We, there's someone who is watching someone do all of that, right? And so how could we not believe that there is someone doing all of that that is fixed and continuous, and so that's why to let, and then we, of course, because that's what our mind is doing, we can't restrict that to just when I'm looking at myself. So I do that when I'm looking at you. I do that when I'm looking at a cat or a cow or a mountain. And so when we begin to relinquish that, freely give that up, that's an act of compassion. To, and when we do that in a way that isn't seeking favor, or status, or position, or anything. It's more compassionate. You know, if we just reflect on any moment, and it's, it's good to take the small ones because they're less complicated, and see how our mental and verbal and physicalized, energetic experiences are coming into being, and how it starts with something and then it grows, it accumulates. That's what the Buddha said. That's the nature of karma until it's interrupted, until we engage it with our awareness. And to see how these habitually arise, how they impulsively arise, as I spoke about yesterday, without choosing. And that sometimes when they don't arise, we get anxious. Where is that? Where is that? I know how to be that person who has those thoughts, who has that experience of being in this body. And when that starts to drop away, it's, for most people, that is anxiety-provoking in the beginning because it's unfamiliar. And so we often go seeking those things, bring them back. James Baldwin said, if white Americans were not so terrified of their private selves, they would never have needed to invent and could never have become so dependent upon what they still call the Negro problem. This problem, which they invented in order to safeguard their purity, has made of them criminals and monsters and is destroying them. And this not from anything that blacks may or may not be doing, because, but because of the role of a guilty and constricted white imagination that is assigned itself to blacks. As he famously said, why do white people need there to be black people? To be a problem. 
What desire is that satisfying? What fear is that obscuring? What responsibility is that abdicating? What suffering is that creating in every direction, not equally? What is being destroyed? To be entangled, to be caught within a wholly constructed idea is just showing us how powerful the mind is. I mean, I remember years ago, we did a retreat on ethics and morality and business and science. And for the business component, somebody from Ben and Jerry's in its early incarnation, when it was still just Ben and Jerry, he was one of the silent partners and he came and he talked about all the kind of socially active things that they were doing. He said one of the ideas they had was that before every G8 or G20, these world leader meetings, before they got together and made decisions that were going to affect everybody, they all had to eat an ice cream cone <laughs> in a cone. <laughs> and my thought is it already has to be soft so it's starting to melt. Because you know what happens, it like gets all over. And he said, because when you eat an ice cream cone, you get young, you become young again. A kind of equalizer. And I thought, yeah, or maybe we could just, they have to do a session first. <laughs> they have to. And I, and I often say, you can't make somebody sit, but we'd make them sit. <laughs> no. So that we could see the self-creation and what happens to that, right? Because every creation we make, we can't contain it, right? This is not a fixed boundary. We are not a vault. It goes out. I think that's a lot of what we reckon with in the beginning is realize, oh, this is what I've been doing in my life. These are the trails. These are the actions. I would like to go back and undo those. I can't. The sense of self. Itself is not the source of dukkha. Having that self-awareness is not a problem. It is not to be extinguished. It's just not to be reified. To not delude that just sensation, that perception of self-awareness, to delude it into something that it's not. That's all. Bell Hooks, in her book on uh, the will to change, on patriarchy, had a very nice way of looking at this. I thought she invokes the story of the Incredible Hulk. And she says, the Hulk is a man always on the run. So this is like an action hero. A man always on the run, unable to develop lasting ties or intimacy. A science by, scientist by training, the ultimate personification of the rational mind or man. When he experiences anger, he turns into a creature of color and commits violent acts. After committing violence, he changes back to his normal white male rational self. He has no memory of his actions and therefore cannot assume responsibility for them. So it sort of puts a light on when we deny and avoid and suppress. Is it that we're not just wanting to face something that is difficult, but if we don't see it, we don't have to take responsibility for it? Is that actually what we already know 
will be necessary, that if I let this in, I will be responsible. Then she goes on to say, since he is unable to form sustained emotional bonds with friends or family, he cannot love. He thrives on disconnection and disassociation. The Incredible Hulk, the story, links sexism and racism. The cool, level-headed, rational white male scientist turned into a colored beast whenever his passions were roused. Tormented by the knowledge of this transformation, he searches for a cure, a way to disassociate himself from the beast within. Searching for a way to disassociate ourselves from the beast within. And so, too, that can help us to really look again at the, at the, the seminal teaching, the essential teaching of the Buddha, that our basic impulse is towards disassociation, which is framed as aversion, to put away or to become entangled, right? Both of them have their stories. And that's why in our sitting, in the letting go, the calming, the, the essential returning to that natural aspect of mind, which is not agitated, that we be very awake and clear of the difference between that and when we are actually just becoming numb or silencing the mind. We're distancing ourselves. And it may feel better because we don't feel the pain, but we don't feel the pain pain because we're putting ourselves in a position where we can no longer love, where we can no longer have relationships in that place because everything is being shut down. And so to be awake to that and to know the difference. And if we don't know the difference, then it means in those moments, to come back into your senses, into your breath, experience it, into your body, it is on the floor, into the sounds of the room. In other words, make contact, let your senses reach out or let the world reach in and make contact with those senses so that you are back in this place where you are and alive. Come back to life again. Cats are never numb. I've never met one. Even when they are asleep. It's like, do they actually ever sleep? They sleep all the time, right? I can't believe how much my cat sleeps. (laughs) And yet, the slightest thing. In fact, Jima was telling me that she was, Sophie was asleep on the thing, out. And suddenly... She's like that, looking at, and she was like, what's going on? What's going on? She couldn't hear anything. She couldn't hear anything. And she was, and then she jumps up, and and there was a bear. So even within her sleep, she's vividly, miraculously aware. I don't know how they do that. Maybe we're learning to wake ourselves up from the, 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 the sleep of samsara. (laughs) and I think that those 
creature friends of ours, right, have not lost that capacity because they can't afford to. It is so deep in their genes, and they have not ultimately been domesticated, even cows. They're still wild. I think that, too, is either what we love about cats or don't. (laughs) They're wild. You have a wild animal in your house. (laughs) To take responsibility is a step into freedom. To let go of self-clinging is an act of compassion. And in order so that that doesn't become intellectual or romanticized or very heady, we practice. And we practice together in simple ways. Living together, creating a virtue of harmony, which is what Sangha means. When Nankwan was about to pass away, the head monk asked him, after you die, where will you go? And Nankwan said, down the mountain to be a water buffalo. And the student said, can I come with you? And Nankwan says, if you come, you must come with a blade of grass in your mouth. (laughs) To let go of this body and mind, this identity, this self, this is who I am, and enter into the body of a buffalo, which is what the student does with that koan, is not to become a buffalo in the same way that a buffalo is a buffalo, but it is to become a buffalo to the extent that I have let go of my clinging, my story, my dream, that this is me. This is who I am. Two legs, not four. Eating spaghetti, not grass. And in that letting go and entering into another reality, dreaming that reality, that buffalo, rather than dreaming this image of me. They're both just dreams. They're both mental images. They're both ideas. But when I enter into the dream of the buffalo without an idea, I'm I'm awakening to the capacity to be in the midst of this in a way that is not defined by ideas. There was once an old enlightened woman who lived in a hut and a monk came to her and said, do you have any followers? And she said, yes, mountains, rivers, the earth, plants, trees, they're all my followers. The student said, are you a nun? And she said, what do you see me as? And the monk said, a lay person. And the woman said, you are not yet a true monk. And he said, you shouldn't get confused about Buddhism. And she says, I'm not confused. (laughs) You're a man, and I'm a woman. Where has there ever been any confusion? I would say, not only are those her followers, but perhaps her teachers too. Perhaps she herself is mountains, rivers, and the earth, plants and trees. The monk wants to relegate her, in his mind, to his place, his view his projections, his needs, his beast, his disassociation. She is not confused by his confusion. Are you a nun or not? She's not confused. What do you see? 
It's not about her. You aren't a true monk, she says. She presents him with the living truth of the life he has pledged himself to be living and in not yet, not yet embodied. I'm not confused about Buddhism. I am a man. You are a man. I'm a woman. Her knowing is not the same as his knowing. But her knowing understands his knowing. His being a man, his seeing a woman is a killing thing. To deny how large and vast not only she is, but he is. Because she does not know it is, she can say, I am a woman and not be confused. This value, we might say, this raising up, that when an ordinary person realizes that they become a Buddha, when a Buddha realizes that they become an ordinary person, how marvelous, that that is what we aspire to to be an ordinary person, to to be able to be ungainly and clumsy in a hundred thousand ways, which is really just saying to be yourself and to understand that to be ourself in the freedom that is our basic nature, we have to take a journey so that we can use all throughout the universe, everything in it as food, put everything in service to the path, know who we are, which is not a new list of attributes, a new identity. And what an act of compassion it is when that's the gift, the ordinary gift we can give to others. The Buddha said, fearlessness is to give no fear, no basis for fear, no reason for you to be afraid. What a wonderful vow we can make for ourselves of that. May I be in my life such that I do not be a cause of fear for you. So I'll end with a poem. Amidst the many creatures, two eyes look out and see. Now, trace this back through the lonely woods of your own seeking mind, and you'll find what? What? Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.